This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Hello. On this week's show, is the United States in the midst of a civil war? My guest, veteran political blogger and online operative Peter Dow, believes the answer is yes, that it's happening online and it's costing lives. His new book is Digital Civil War, Confronting the Right-Wing Menace. And he says the way that progressives mount their resistance in this war matters. We cannot become that which we're fighting. We have to embody our progressive principles at the same time that we're fighting the fight. So we can never descend into becoming bad, immoral people in a fight against immorality. Also, we check in with Washington State Poet Laureate Claudia Castro Luna, who has recently been named an Academy of American Poets Laureate Fellow, which confers a $100,000 grant, money she's using to fund a new project called One River, A Thousand Names. I came up with this idea of you know, creating poetic convergences along the entire length of the Columbia River as it moves through our state. We also have our weekly calls to action with research team leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all ahead, so stay with us. In a recent interview, veteran journalist Carl Bernstein said that the political sides in this country are moving toward a kind of cold civil war. But my guest Peter Dow says that we are already in a civil war and it is not cold. He cites the killing of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, the violence of white nationalist groups all over the country, the Trump supporter who mailed explosive devices to prominent Democrats in CNN, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, and on and on. Dow says one of the key fronts in this war is social media and he has written a new book about it called Digital Civil War, Confronting the Far-Right Menace. He's a veteran political blogger and was a digital operative for the Kerry and Hillary Clinton presidential campaigns, and he joins us now. Peter Dow, welcome. Nice to be with you. Thank you. So, you know, you start off the book by talking about how you grew up in Lebanon, in Beirut, during the years of civil war there, and you mention that fact by way of comparison to what we're experiencing here in the U.S. with what you have termed the digital civil war. So what are some of the parallels that you see? You know, there are a number. I I think on on two fronts, really, the two main parallels that I see is reaching that point where there's no longer rational discourse or disagreement or debate. We get a point where at such odds, you're no longer seeing reality in the same way. And at that point, you know, rational discourse breaks down. And I certainly see that going on over here. When you look at, um, you know, broadly speaking, when I say left, right, or red, blue, of course, there are a lot of different factions in between, but generally the sort of Democrat versus Republican, uh, right wing versus left wing debate in America. It, it, it's at a point where, you know, sometimes I'll actually, as a Democrat progressive myself, I'll, I'll browse what uh, the right is saying. I'll go into comments. I'll follow people. Um, you know, on Twitter, Facebook, and elsewhere. And I read it, it's like the exact inverse of what I read from progressives and Democrats. So that point at which you're seeing the world in just diametrically opposed ways, you you risk, and I think we've reached that point here, I obviously argue it in the book, where you're now in a fight essentially to the political death. You no longer see your opponent as a partner in a country, but more somebody who's, who's, who's out to destroy your beliefs, your way of life. So that fundamental um, you know, t- tension that leads to civil war exists here. The second piece of it is more about what it's like to be living in a war, because 
most of my youth was spent in the war there. I was 10 when the Civil War began. I was living in Beirut, which was the heart of the fighting. So I spent many nights in bomb shelters and, uh, and with, with, with roving street battles all around me. You know, it was it was terrifying. It's what you see you know, pictures of Syria and Iraq that you see on the news now. Is what my childhood was like. And bombed out buildings and, and and gun battles and rocket fire. There were times when you know missiles were raining down 10, 20 uh, a minute. So it was terrifying. But then we'd get up the next day and and we'd live. And when the fighting stopped, there was a ceasefire. We'd go to school. Parents would go to work. Families would go to work. People would even go to movies and entertainment. So life goes on in the midst of strife and conflict. And the analogy here is that, you know, we can get distracted or lulled by the sense that, you know, there are still movies and award shows and vacations and chores and you go around, you go to baseball games. You know, you live your ordinary life. You go to work. And yet... There is a fight going on that is costing lives. And you talked about how I opened the book. There there are people who are getting radicalized online, going out and killing people in the in the non-digital world. They're going out to churches and synagogues and places of worship and everywhere else. And these people are being radicalized in this fight online. So we can't be lulled into thinking everything's fine and this is really not a big deal. And don't worry, you know, Twitter is not real life. We have to realize that even though life continues and humans adapt, that other people are facing life and death circumstances around us. So on the topic of social media, I mean, your book very eloquently warns about the dangers of the radical right. Um, And as you say, the radicalization happens online. And I think a lot of us have come to think of social media as a, a fairly democratic medium, which is to say that it can be used to either side's advantage, depending on how it's used. Why do you think that the far right has proven to be more effective than the left at using social media to their ends? I think a a long time ago, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a half century ago, I think at the time the conservative movement, the right wing movement, um, began realizing that creating their own media infrastructure was the way to win the culture wars and to, to win these these battles um, that we're fighting over these issues and to push their agenda. And so for a long time, they've been building this apparatus around Fox and Sinclair and, and, and you know, hate radio. And then social media came along and they, they, they adopted it readily because it fit right into their agenda of building their own communications infrastructure. And they, they are extremely good at it. If you look at YouTube, if you look at um, 4chan, 8chan, Reddit, uh, there are all sorts of places where where the right is able to radicalize and mobilize people. Um, and I don't know that, that Democrats have understood how how effective the right has been. You know, I tell people just uh, type in, go to YouTube and type in AOC. Um, and you'll see an entire ecosystem around attacking one woman who just got elected to, to Congress. You see it on Twitter, too. You see it, of course, yeah. And you see it on all these platforms. And, and when I say social media, I'm really talking about the entire range of platforms. Everything, for, for, as I say, from Gab to 4chan, Reddit, Instagram, Pinterest, anywhere people can interact online, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, etc. It's not just a lot of people think it's sort of just Twitter, because Twitter really is a focal point. Um, of, of the national debate or fight or, you know, 
or, or maybe the open sewer. Uh, it's not, it's not exactly the prettiest place online. No, it's it's a war zone. I mean, it is a war zone. You go on there, you're going to be eaten alive. Especially if you're talking about politics on other issues too. But if you if you get into the political, if you get you know into the political trenches on social media, it is a battlefield. There's no doubt about it. And the people who suffer the most and who are attacked and harassed the most are, are women, and and women of color even more so. So it is not a safe place. You know, I also have to wonder, um, conservatives tend to be more comfortable than liberals with black and white thinking and slogans, and those sorts of things tend to play pretty well on social media. Nuance plays uh, pretty poorly, conversely. It's true, and and, and more than that, I think it's the, you know, getting back to this right-wing media apparatus, a lot of it is funded by these shadowy billionaires who, who fund think tanks whose entire job is to craft messaging that makes heinous policies palatable and, and distills them into these the sound bites. So, as you say, that works extremely well. You just you know, doing these memes and doing these talking points. They work very well on digital platforms. Let's talk about some of that messaging because you open your book by talking about the false narrative of the quote-unquote real American, the rural, white, Christian, male Republican. Uh, So talk about how the right has used this media infrastructure to establish and maintain that narrative. And that narrative, the reason I opened the book with that narrative is because it's also, one of the the problems is right-wing media also sets the agenda for corporate media and even for the Democratic Party establishment, people who, who, who buy into the fact that the New York Times is liberal, which is, which is a joke. Um, you know, corporate media outlets are not liberal. They're corporate outlets, and they're the bottom line for them is, is, is making money. Um, so, so the real American narrative really goes back to the very inception of this country. And I quote a number of historians who talk about what it meant to be, you know, if you were black or African-American, you, you are not a real American. The real American is this sort of Marlboro man figure, this quintessential, you know, definitely not on the coast, got to be some, some, some rural town in the middle of the country. And, you know, all, all the usual cliches, they're, they're, they're church going, they're gun toting, they have their pickup truck, they got their flag decal, they support the troops, they wave the flag. This image of the real American, everybody else is a little bit lesser or a lot lesser of an American. So somebody in Puerto Rico, somebody in, 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 in Baltimore, somebody in Miami, they're just not as American, a person of color, not as American. And, and now this theme, you see it everywhere. And you see it, as I say, unfortunately being, being repeated and, 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 and sort of imbibed and then regurgitated by just about the entire political establishment. You have this whole range of uh, say media stories about, you know, we asked the, the Trump supporters if they still support Trump. And then you have this image of the, of the sort of, you know, going to the Rust Belt diner and you talk to this MAGA voter and somehow their opinion matters the most. If they still support Trump, then all is okay. And, and so this myth of the real American is, it completely distorts the reality of what America is, right? America is not that. And it's in the interest, I think, and you point this out in the book, it's in the interest of Republican donors and politicians to perpetuate this narrative because that keeps the base feeling victimized, like their core identity is at risk always of being taken away from them. And that's when things can get dangerous. 
Well, th- think about how if, if you if you take a look at how Fox News and the GOP portray the entire immigration issue, they paint it as though hordes of brown people are invading our towns and raping our our, our, our daughters and stealing our jobs. That that's the image that's portrayed. You know, you're the good white Christian American, and all these brown invaders are coming to destroy your life. That is the frame. Now, maybe it's not as explicit, but often it is close to being that explicit on on some of these outlets. Um, and 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 again, so that's so, so precisely right that 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 victimization, that grievance, that, that the idea of white grievance. You know, Brian Stelter, um, the CNN reporter, talked about how white grievance is. A, is and I mentioned this in the book. I quote in the book is a recurring theme throughout Fox News's reporting. Yeah. You'll see a single crime by an undocumented immigrant highlighted as though it's it's and implying somehow that undocumented immigrants commit crimes at a much higher rate. When in fact the opposite is true. Studies that have been done, Cato, the Cato Institute did a study saying that that undocumented immigrants commit crimes at a lower rate um, than 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 other communities and groups. So, you know, but 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 that's sort of the nature of how the conversation and dialogue takes place, and it has reached a point, as you say, where it's stoked xenophobia and racism, bigotry, and the worst impulses in people. And that's for the Republican Party. That energy of hate, that right wing extremism, that 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 you know, the white supremacy, is what's driving this party at this point. And this is what we have to confront. And that's where the violence has often sprung from. And, you know, you talk about social media as being a place where a lot of this radicalization happens. And I'm wondering, I'll just ask you flat out, do you see social media as a fundamental threat to democracy? You know, I don't. I, I, I certainly see that, you know, and you know, Elizabeth Warren as a candidate has talked a lot about this, about breaking up big tech and holding them responsible for becoming platforms, first of all, for being monopolies at this point and also becoming platforms to, to, to spread hate. But the responsible use of social media and the, and the capacity it gives us to connect as humans, I'll, I, I'll never say that that is a threat to humanity. But as it's being used, look, we, we are now living in a surveillance society. The way digital platforms have developed and these massive monopolies of four or five companies that know every single thing about us and every single thing we do, this has developed in a, in a really frightening, chilling way. But I think it can be fixed, and the good parts of social media are critically important. The people that can come together, raise money for causes, connect with one another, help one another, give each other comfort. There are a lot of positive uses about the capacity to be able to connect digitally that I would never say we should do away with. And I want to actually have you touch on that very thing because, you know, you point out in the book that corporate media is largely failing to counterbalance the the lies and distortions from the GOP. Um, We should be able to rely on the courts to remedy this, but they are now, of course, tilting more and more to the right, and therefore it falls to us as citizens. And so for those of us on the left, considering the fact that we have equal access to social media, what is the best way to fight back against what you call the far right menace? Do we fight fire with fire? Well, I always, I always believe, and I've, I've been doing this for twenty years. Before, you know, pre-social media, I was in the political trenches, and at the beginning of blogs, I was. I, I started in politics when when George W. Bush was elected, or as we used to say, selected. Um, <laughs> so now, you know, during this entire time, I've always argued uh, that we have to fight tooth and nail. I was 
you know, in a battle zone, Beirut. I know what it's like to fight. I know what it's like to to, to survive an actual war. So I'm a, I'm a believer that we have to confront threats head on, and we have to protect our democracy with, with the courage of our convictions. We can't be weak about it. At the same time, I've always cautioned, we cannot become that which we're fighting. We have to embody our progressive principles at the same time that we're fighting the fight. So we can never descend into becoming bad, immoral people in a fight against immorality. So that's, that's one piece of the answer to your question. Um, I think it's critically important that we embody our principles in the fight. That doesn't mean you can't fight hard. You can fight very hard, and the more you believe in something, and we look at our heroes like Martin Luther King and others who fought with tremendous courage and conviction, and yet they fought on, based on the principles that they believed in. So that's one piece. So the second piece of it is, look, I, I do say in the book that there are no heroes coming. I argued about you know, Robert Mueller and the investigation that it wasn't going to be some, some savior who was going to just you know, get Trump, take him down, get him out of office. And I continue to argue that there are no saviors. We only have each other. And what we can do is use these digital platforms as long as they're still around. I mean, I, you know, I lived in a place where if you spoke out, you could, you could, uh, you know, get in serious trouble, um, you know, get arrested or worse. So I, I'm not confident that if things continue the way they're going, we're always going to have these platforms to just speak freely on. And that, that's what worries me the most. But we have them now, and there are other ways of connecting, of course, on the ground. I think it's crucial that we we're connect with one another and step up and be leaders. I, I always say just find the thing that you know how to do. Is it a podcast? Is it canvassing? Is it phone banking? Is it uh, you know tweeting? Is it running for office? Whatever it is that you feel you can cont- contribute, do it and connect with like-minded people. And we can be our own leaders. We, have to, we don't have to wait for a savior to come save us. We're millions, tens of millions strong. So we have a lot of power. You know, you also say along those lines that the left needs to invest in messaging in the same way that the right does. And I'm wondering what that looks like to you and where the where the funding sources might be. You know, there, there are a number of different ways that can happen. I think it's, it's you know, the Democratic Party as an institution should show more support for progressive media, should let go because far too many people. I lived in the Beltway when I worked on campaigns. I worked on presidential campaigns and I see how. Too, far too many Democrats, and even the polling shows this, buy into this notion that, hey, we already have our media. You know, we have New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, CNN, that, that's all liberal. That's just a right-wing talking point to set up their own media infrastructure, and we should not buy into it. What we sh- should do, I believe, as Democrats is support progressive media, you know, podcasters, writers, et cetera, uh, out, news outlets, and so that's the first piece of it. Institutionally, the party can do it by giving interviews to people, by you know saying supportive things about them. The second thing is donors and funders of progressive causes. If you take a look at the right, you'll see how much money goes into you know from all these shadowy oligarchs. True. Understand that you have to fund media, but I, I don't think on the progressive side that has been the case. I've seen progressive media struggle to to, to make money. If you look at all the way back to I remember when Air America launched and. The notion that, okay, we could have our own progressive radio. And during all these years, I've just not seen institutional support from the elders of the party for progressive media. You know, a prevailing argument on the left is that we simply have to win elections and disempower the radical right legislatively. But we know that they're not going to go away. Right. And and in fact, could become even more radicalized if they are defeated. In your mind, how do we on the left win this digital civil war? 
You know, it's it's a that's a very good question. It's something I grapple with a lot. We tend to be as humans hopeful beings, right? We we tend to feel that even even though many of us you know can feel hopeless and and at times all of us do, but we we tend to believe that things are going to revert to a norm. That's what I mean by hopeful. And again, having lived through the trauma of war myself. I remember a conversation with my father who passed away many years ago, but during the war, he'd say, you know, don't worry, two, two, two weeks, there'll be a ceasefire and we're going to go back to our lives. And well, it took 15 years. And I've seen something similar here. When I got into politics 20 years ago and got into the trenches and got on the battlefield and started fighting this fight, I never imagined that, that 20 years later, things would be so much worse than they were then. You know, some things have gotten better and you, you'll win a battle here and there. We'll get an Obama elected. We'll have a blue wave. But for the most part, we are in worse shape now. I'm seeing some of the most radical fringe elements of the far right now sitting in the White House. People who will who will steal children from their parents, which is a, which is essentially an atrocity. It's a human rights violation of a, of the worst kind. So, yeah, I don't know whether there is winning. We just have to keep resisting and fighting and joining with one another and not letting them take over because that's where we are right now. If Trump wins again, if the, I've been arguing about impeachment, saying Democrats have to impeach. If, 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 if immediately, this whole dithering on impeachment is, is a terrible message to send. The Democratic Party will not fight back. So we just, we just have to keep fighting, assuming that things will get better, but being realistic and knowing this could be beyond our lifetimes. This could be generations before we're able to do it, if at all. This could, it could be a, per, a perpetual fight between the forces of of what are really essentially racism and white supremacy and, and xenophobia and bigotry versus progressivism and trying to move the country forward. Yeah, it's looking like it may be a, a protracted battle. And, you know, you mentioned impeachment. I think that's something that people are watching very closely. And, of course, there's the upcoming 2020 election. And that's something I'd really love to get your thoughts on. As I mentioned in the intro, you worked in John Kerry's presidential campaign war room, and you were Internet director for Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. And, you know, just in terms of how digital media has evolved as a campaign tool over the years, Obama Obama's former communications director, Dan Pfeiffer, is very vocal about how he feels that campaigns spend way too much on traditional media and not enough on digital and social. What do you think is the right balance here from your experience? And, and how would you like to see the eventual Democratic nominee use digital media against Trump in the 2020 presidential race? Well, let's take a look at 2016. I mean, the, the side that was much more effective was the Republican side. Right. If you look at Facebook now, uh, a good amount of it was, you know, illegal uh, Russian intervention, of essentially a Russian cyber assault on our election, but also the Trump campaign itself and, and, and the Republicans uh, used Facebook to spread false messages, propaganda, spin, fake news to rile people up, to, to rally their base. So, you know, I've seen digital go from – I remember when I first uh, joined the campaign in 2003 and I said something about blogs and the person, a very prominent uh, Democratic strategist, and I won't name names, said, uh, I wouldn't know a blog if it hit me in the head. <laughs> and uh, essentially implying, uh, what is this digital thing? It's pointless. I had to When I joined the Kerry campaign, I had to convince people that blogs mattered, that, that the internet matter, mattered. And of course, you know, we're so far beyond that now, but I've seen that whole evolution of – yeah, what's Democratic Underground? That's what I actually first got my start, that forum, which is still around. And who cares what they're saying online? And 
my argument was because this is where the groundswell is, this is where progressives are, this is where the real energy is, this is where the base is, this is where the net roots are. So I have to make that case. But we're not at a point where I think people do realize how important digital is. What the balance is between paid media and traditional media and digital, every campaign has to decide. My fundamental message to Democrats who are running in 2020, and I this was a message I, I, I tried to say in 2015 very early on with Hillary Clinton, is don't discount the fundamental strategy of swift voting, which I lived through during the Kerry campaign, of simply destroying the character through repetition, through constant attacks, through projection, through gaslighting of the character of the candidate. Whoever our candidate is, is going to have their character under extreme assaults. Well, John Kerry had since said that he believes that his biggest mistake in the whole swift boating episode was not responding sooner or more forcefully, and social media allows you to do that, right? It does, and and it's just completely understanding. I, all of media is, you know, I, I try to describe um, how people imbibe information by saying, take a 30,000-foot view, look down at the country and imagine all the citizens, then imagine all these lines of data flowing between them. And it's just this massive network of information people are getting it through the New York Times or Facebook or some little website or a local news channel or all the various ways we interact with information and interact with one another. It's this massive system of information. And there are different nodes of where these where information moves and how it moves more rapidly, where it collects, where it it's like, you know, swirls and eddies in, 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 in a raging river. And so any successful candidate needs to have that view and understand how information is moving around, be nimble, be able to, 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 to manage that information flow and not fall behind or drown, to, to go with the metaphor. Uh, and it's difficult. It's complicated. And you, you need communications experts to do it. You know, before I let you go, I have to ask you about something that people may not know about you, and that is that you are also a musician and producer. You played on tracks for tons of artists, uh, including several that I very much admire, Bjork, Michelle and Degio Cello, The Black Sheep, also Mariah Carey. Are there any stories of your time uh, in music that you can uh, leave us with? Well, thanks for asking. I mean, it's another part of my life that's crucially important to me. I, I, when, I, you know, I, when I got escaped to war, in Lebanon, I, I transferred. I was going to university there. I transferred to NYU, which is in downtown Manhattan, which is right near all the jazz clubs. And I was a jazz musician. So for me, it was wonderful to, to escape the war and to get into the music scene. And that developed into meeting some of the very, very early um, proponents of, of dance music, or the creators of house music, like Frankie Knuckles and others in Chicago, Detroit. Oh, wow. So I, I, I managed to fall in because I was a, a trained jazz musician. I managed to fall in with a group of DJs who were essentially the founders of house and electronic music, of deep house and electronic music, and ended up being one of the main keyboard players, engineers, and producers in the early, early inception of dance music as we know it today. So I, I ended up working on probably over five or 600 recordings on every artist you can think of. As you mentioned, Janet Jackson, Miles Davis, Michelle um, Degocello, Bjork, uh, you know, so on and on and on. I, I even worked on an Elton John remix of Rock, Rocket Man. <laughs> that was actually one of the most memorable things in my life. So, so what I ended up being is one of the most um, sort of in-demand session keyboard players in New York. There are about three, three of us um, who were doing almost all the keyboards on dance music in the 90s. So anywhere I'd go, any store I'd walk into, any club I'd go into, I was listening to, to music that I'd created. It was 
a wonderful experience. Um, but I have to say, I say Rocket Man um, and Thriller um, and some of these, you know, the remix scene in the 90s was huge. No matter what the track was, the major labels wanted a remix of it so that they could have a more dance-friendly version. So you see, listening to the master tapes of, of Elton John's Rocket Man was one of the most, because I'm a big fan of, of Elton John and, and 70s artists, and listening to, you know, track by track, we could break it down, just the vocals, just the guitar part, the synths, uh, quite a wonderful experience. Michelle um, Baker, Chell, another wonderful artist, bass player, I had the chance to work with her, uh, to hang out, to, to listen to her play. She was, she was amazing. So it was, it was incredible. The 90s, the heyday of, 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 of house music in the 90s, deep house music was phenomenal. Like these, you know, out of the way clubs where people would just have just amazing times, just listening to music till five, six in the morning. It was, it was beautiful, beautiful time. I, I miss it, I must say. Well, you were sure as hell in the right place at the right time with the right skill set to be doing all that. Yeah, exactly. It was sheer, sheer you know, the, the timing and luck, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I thought I would be a jazz musician, and, and but I, I, I sort of fell in with just the right group of DJs, and um, it was phenomenal. I mean, I traveled the world, and I, I, I did the first rave in Los Angeles at the Shrine Auditorium. I wow. performed there. Um, you know, performed at the Olympia Theater in Paris for seven straight nights, opening for a very famous French artist. I mean, I've had tremendous music experiences. You know, I had my artists on MTV and elsewhere. It really was my life. I only got into politics um, when Bush was was became president. I thought, okay, I have to do something about this. I have to I have to fight back. And from that point on, it just became politics. Well, how interesting that, and I think your story is similar to a lot of people who listen to this show, which is after the 2016 election, uh, a lot of people took their skill sets and said, okay, how can these apply to politics? I will just mention that there are links on your website, peterdow.com, to many of the tracks and remixes that you just mentioned for people to check out. I certainly did. Peter Dow's book is Digital Civil War Confronting the Far-Right Menace out on Melville Press. Peter Dow, it's been such uh, fun talking to you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. In April, Washington's Poet Laureate Claudia Castro Luna was named an Academy of American Poets Laureate Fellow, which, in addition to being a very prestigious honor, comes with something else, a $100,000 grant. She will be using the money to fund a new project called One River, A Thousand Names, and she is with us now to talk about that. Claudia Castro Luna, welcome back to the show. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me again. Well, first of all, congratulations on the fellowship. Thank you. Thank you. It's a huge honor. Were you surprised when you got the news? Yes. Yes, I was very surprised. It's it's a new program that the um, Academy is funding. And the call went out in January for folks serving at laureateship positions to propose um, you know, programs that they that they wanted to carry out. And there this is for individuals serving at the state level, at the county level, and or at the city level. And so I came up with this idea of creating poetic convergences along the entire length of the Columbia River as it moves through our state from Kettle Falls all the way down to the mouth of the river. And so I submitted the proposal. I thought it would be a great way to interact with folks, um, to write poems about the river and hear from folks who live on the river 
what what life is like for them and to share that information with everyone else in the state. But I thought it was, um, you know, it was a long shot. Um, I mean, I, I worked very hard to put together the proposal and then, you know, I crossed my fingers. So I was very, um, I was pleasantly surprised when I got the phone call from New York that I had been one of 13 to be granted the proposals. Well, it's such a beautifully conceived idea. And, you know, a lot of the river runs through native land. And so along the way, I understand you're going to be working with indigenous and Latinx youth. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, my idea was to focus the writing. I selected eight communities along the river and uh, to spend time at each one and to try to really gather uh, youth, uh, Latin youth, because the river is moving through agricultural zones that have changed demographically over time in our state and are heavily Latino in some parts. And of course, uh, Native Americans um, who continue to live and thrive along the river as they have for millennia. And just to be clear, it won't be just youth, but people of all ages, and you'll be encouraging people to use the river as inspiration for poetry, yes? Exactly, yeah. The idea is to write about, you know, just what the river means to each of them. What are their interactions with the river? What are the memories that they have of the river? And it's, it's certainly not just for youth. It's for for everyone. Um I'm interested in hearing stories of people who've lived in this part for a long time, who have stories of what the river was like, what was it like to live in the river 30, 40, 50 years ago, Um, and to also expand the notion of what poems are, because, you know, we we will be coming together and writing poetry, but telling a story could also be um, then shaped into a poem. So I, I, I want... Uh, to demystify this notion of what writing poems are, which is part of what I do everywhere I go. Anyhow, it's part of what I try to do as the laureate. Well, you know, you keep innovating, engaging ways to get poetry out there and making it accessible. Like, So, for example, when you were Seattle's Poet Laureate, you came up with the Seattle Poetic Grid, which was a map that was dotted with poems written at or inspired by different locations in the city. Have you always thought in terms of innovative ways to get poetry out there into the world? You know, I, I, I think that that is just naturally well where I go, partly because I know that I would have started writing a lot sooner had I encountered people who made poetry accessible to me and who said, uh, who gave me permission to, to just, you yeah. know, write what I was feeling or thinking at the moment and showed me in a way how how a path into that. And so I think my default is to want to, to share what I have learned in my experience with writing with others to encourage them to to write, uh, you know, what's in their heart. So I, I think I'm just naturally tend to fall into that into that category. I was in Forks two weeks or two and a half weeks ago. You know, it's fairly far out there in the peninsula. It's a small town, and we did through the library. We did a poetry writing workshop. And we had about 12 people who came out and the librarians were surprised that as many people came out, uh, which tells you that people want to write, right? Yeah. Even, you know, in a Friday, I think um, folks came, some folks came after work and it was just so wonderful. And at the end, this woman, she shared this wonderful poem she'd written at the end. But before she said, I don't think this is a poem, but I'm going to 
read it anyhow. And so we all read it and it was wonderful. And it was a poem. And I said, that is absolutely a poem what you just wrote. She's, and she said, really? I said, yes, absolutely. Here, I'm going to show you what things you did that would categorize this as, as a poem. At least I, I think it is a poem. I know it is a poem. You know, I'm declaring it a poem. And so it was very interesting for her to discover at that moment, it was like a little moment of discovery that she indeed is writing really great stuff. And sometimes we just need the permission from somebody. We need we need that affirmation from someone outside ourselves. And so that's what I try to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I imagine that you'll be doing a lot of that kind of work with the One River Project. Uh, I know you're hard at work on preparations for that right now. When is it slated to start? That's slated to start in September. Uh, it's starting in September because uh, students are leaving school now, and I really want to um, have kids in schools. I want to be school to be in session because I think schools are going to be a pivotal for me to get close to the youth who live in these places. Then I move to the Pateros Brewster area in October, then Wenatchee, then Wanapum, Tri-Cities. Goldendale, White Salmon, and uh, Vancouver, and then ending in Kathlamet probably mid-April. Well, I do know that a lot of the specific details for this project are shaping up right now, so we'll have that information for listeners down the line. But, you know, there's one last project that I want to ask you about, and, you know, I mentioned Seattle Poetic Grid. You've done something similar for the entire state, right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that is exactly right. So, I created a digital map of the state of Washington, and this is more ambitious than the Poetic Grid in that, um, well, it's a larger territory, but I also provide lesson plans for teachers and groups of people or individuals who would be interested in in, in kind of, it walks them through how to write a poem of place, and then it has a button for a submission uh, to send it to me to be considered to be put up on the on the map. Okay. Um, it's a it's a map of the state of Washington, and when you open the website Washington Poetic Roots, um, you see the map with green these green ribbons, and each of those green lines are roads. They're actual roads um, that exist in the state of Washington. And my thinking was, how do we get it from point A to point B? Well, we get on the road and we drive. We get it. If we want to go to Spokane, we get on the road from Seattle, those of us who live on this side of the state, and travel 90 across. And so these are iconic roads. They're clickable. So if you click on the green line, a window pops up and tells you a little bit of a story, a small detail about that particular road. And then the map has these little red dots on it, and each dot hides a poem about that location. And again, these are poems that have been sent to me. In this case, some of them I have been to those places and written poems with people. Others, they have been sent to me and I have uploaded them and they are all amazing and wonderful and tell what it's like to live in that particular location. Some of them have a little bit of more of a historical turn. There's poems written by children and youth. Some of the poems are accompanied by images, and those images are coming from Washington State's art archive. The state owns about 4,700 pieces of art 
anything from baskets to, you know, drawings and photographs, and they're distributed all over the state and they've digitized the collection. So I've gone into this digital archive and taken images that seem appropriate to the poems and match them up. Sometimes the artist is also from the place where the poem is located. And so it adds another visual dimension to place. And, and I should stress that this is an ongoing project, yeah? Yeah, and these are all, you know, I will continue. I've received hundreds of poems uh, to the website where I've asked folks to send them, and I'm reading through them. Um, now that I'm finishing up my teaching at Seattle U, I will have a lot more time to read through um, and upload as many poems as possible up on the website. It's very enjoyable to click around and and see where people live and what they do there. Well, it's an extraordinarily exciting project, and I will have a link for that at indivisiblepodcast.org. Claudia Castro Luna is Washington's Poet Laureate. As always, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. It's so wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for your interest and enthusiasm about poetry and our state. You make it easy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And let's check in, as we always do, with our friend research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Stephen Wilhelm, for this week's Calls to Action. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good, man. So, you know, one of our calls to action was to ask members of Congress to support H.R. 6, which would provide permanent relief to DREAMers, temporary protected status holders, and deferred enforcement departure holders. But hey, good news, that passed in the House on Tuesday night. Um, There is, however, a related bill that deserves consideration, and that is H.R. 2214, which would address both Trump's Muslim ban and the asylum ban. Uh, Tell us about that. So, as you were just saying, that that would uh, repeal both of those bans. The the Muslim ban is what we what I tend to forget with this the clown show of an administration is that there's so many crises going on that you just kind of forget all the old ones. So right. remember, way back when, um, in the very first months of his administration, he issued an executive order that that implemented a ban against uh, seven Muslim countries, or reduced immigration opportunities from seven Muslim countries. And then subsequently, um, he reduced uh, asylum opportunities uh, for immigrants from Central America. So the House Bill 2214 would repeal both of those bans. So so that would allow those folks to come into the country and apply for asylum, not to be, you know, um, it it doesn't change any of the rules. It just keeps the the rules that that we currently have and just allows them to apply um, under international treaty to to make a claim that they are being uh, oppressed in their their native country and and to apply for asylum here. And they're, they're not guaranteed that they will be granted that, but at least now they would be allowed to apply, which under the the, the travel ban, they wouldn't even be allowed to come into the country and to apply. That bill will undo some of the damage for um, immigrants, uh, refugee and Muslim communities and, and provide some relief um, for those at risk of, of deportation. In fact, I, I would even mention, uh, Stefan, that there's a, a Senate bill as well, uh, Senate Bill 1123. So uh, the call to action would be to ask both of our senators and our representative to 
co-sponsor and to um, speak out in favor of both of those bills. Yeah, it sounds like this would address a lot of wrongdoing currently by the Trump administration. Yeah, so just reiterating, uh, the action here is to ask our House members to co-sponsor H.R. 2214 and our senators to sponsor 1123. And uh, for those members who supported H.R. 6, which is every House Democrat in Washington, and hey, even Dan Newhouse, a Republican in the 4th, uh, supported it, we should call and express our gratitude for that. Okay, so there is just one other call to action this week, but this is a big one. Um, and this is in light of Trump's ongoing trade wars and how they are hurting Washington farmers. First, you know, just so we get a picture here, help us understand how these foreign tariffs are affecting our farmers. In fact, they they do um, harm in a couple of different ways. Um, So there's an immediate impact on the farmers in that raising prices on their goods causes them to clearly, um, you know, not be be able to sell as much to uh, foreign buyers. And, uh, you know, that plays out in several different ways here here in Washington state. Um, You know, one of the examples is uh, the president of the Washington Apple Commission says that uh, China is the sixth biggest importer of Washington apples and in a normal year buys about $40 million of state apples. Um, they are definitely not buying more, they're buying fewer. And the second problem with this is as foreign countries stop buying from established suppliers, established growers here in the United States, they establish um, new relationships with uh, buyers in Australia, buyers in South America, wherever. That That's not the kind of decision that, as the president seems to think, you just, you know, drop a dime and today I'm buying from America, tomorrow I'm buying from Mexico, and, um, you know, next week if the tariffs drop off, well, I'll just go back to uh, buying from America. The long-term negative impact on, on Washington state farmers is that that if we lose that, you know, favored relationship, you know, we were talking about the fact that uh, China likes to buy our apples. And one of the reasons is because there's been an extra investment uh, state growers have made to meet China's really stringent import protocols. If some other supplier makes those same protocol changes for their fruit, China has no reason to to change back to American growers. Then at that point, it's it's really right. disruptive for them to change and change and change again. So, if someone else is willing to come in and uh, supply the same need that our growers used to supply, then that's a long term change. That's not just a temporary change because the tariffs on the tariffs off. Well, it does seem like there is some traction on this. Um, prominent members of the GOP led Senate, uh, namely. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, also Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, indicated that they are not willing to go along with Trump's threat to impose progressive tariffs on Mexico over immigration. So this may prove to be a bipartisan issue and maybe, uh, hey, what do you know, uh, the line in the sand for Republicans with Trump. So in any event, what are we asking our members of Congress to do here? Yeah, great question. So so this is one of those opportunities where actually um, activists can kind of be on the leading edge. So generally we, we ask, uh, you know, listeners to um, call about a specific bill. There is no bill yet. So what we really need um, callers to do is, is to call every one of their, their members of Congress and ask their members of Congress to speak out against the damage um, that that these tariffs are causing to farmers. Um, and certainly as, as your listeners read things, they can give those specific examples to um, the members of Congress that they're calling. But, but so the, the need here is for the president to hear loud and clear that members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, 
are very much inclined to vote against this emergency order, which is kind of similar to the the um, emergency order to build the wall. And what needs to be different this time is it needs to be Democrats and Republicans, like maybe Mr. Newhouse or others. And, and they need to make it clear that if he, they pass a bill to overturn this emergency order, which he will veto just like he did last time, we need enough Republicans to override the veto in both the House and the Senate. And and I forget the exact numbers, but it's something like we need at least seven or eight senators. And we need something like 55, 50 some odd, 60 um, representatives. We need to get up to 290 representatives to override the veto in the House of Representatives. So both Democrat and Republican members of, of Congress need to be crystal clear that they're going to override the veto. And the way we get there is by uh, listeners calling their Republican and Democratic members of Congress and, and asking them to speak out on this issue. Well, that is uh, an interesting turn of events. Uh, usually when we have our calls to action, they are specifically for our Democratic House members. And of course, we have our two Democratic senators. But in this instance, we really want to put pressure on our state's Republican members of Congress. So that would be Newhouse, Herrera Butler, and of course, Kathy McMorris-Rogers. All right, Stephen, thanks for the info as always. And we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Stephen. Talk to you soon. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you missed anything, if you would like to catch up on past shows, if you would like links to the things that we talked about this week, you can find all of that at indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there, too, and have it delivered to your email inbox. If you would like to drop us a line, I would love it. The email for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Peter Dow and Claudia Castro Luna. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.